we are uh, continuing in a sermon series on the book of Proverbs. And if you've been with us over the course of this series, you know that we've said that Proverbs is a part, it comes from a part of the Bible called the wisdom literature of the Bible. And what the wisdom literature does for us is it lays out uh, the elements that make for a wise and flourishing human life under God's care. As we look at the book of Proverbs and as we read uh, what the author and authors is principally authored uh, by Solomon, but also includes uh, additions from other authors, as we look at it, we can get a feeling for what these ancient authors thought made for a full and rich and wise human life. And of course, beyond that, we can see what, who we believe is the ultimate author of Scripture, the God who breathed it, what he believes is necessary for a full and rich human life. And as we've gone through Proverbs over the course of this summer, you can see that a lot of the things that the ancients, uh, the ancient authors were concerned about, map pretty evenly onto the kinds of things that we're still interested in, right? We find them writing about things like uh, wisdom for managing your emotional life. We see them writing about on things like marriage and family and decision-making and leadership, Things that if you were to walk into your local bookstore, um, if you are fortunate enough to still have a local bookstore, and walk through the aisles, it's something that you would still see that we're writing books and magazines about. Uh, People are still interested in learning how to manage these parts of their lives with wisdom. But there's one area that I think stands out as we look at the Proverbs. And the reason that we did the readings like we did today with different selections kind of taken from all over the book of Proverbs is that it gets to where, as you read the book of Proverbs after about the first nine chapters, it gets to where there's, there's different pieces arranged different places, wisdom on the same topics. But one of the topics that the authors of Proverbs give great weight to, that we in our day largely neglect to think about or prioritize, is friendship. If we look at the amount of ink and energy that the author of Proverbs uh, gives towards talking about how we forge and build deep and lasting friendships, and then go to your local bookstore and look for books on building deep and lasting friendships, I think you'll find that, that something that, that uh, our, our forefathers in the faith thought of as infinitely important is, is something that you can't live a true and happy and flourishing and wise human life without building great friendships. We largely uh, ignore in our world. C.S. Lewis put it this way. You're going to have a lot, uh, more than usual, C.S. Lewis quotes this morning uh, because he wrote in his great uh, little book, The Four Loves, he wrote an essay on friendship that I think is just one of the best treatments of the subject. But he he wrote this on friendship. He said, to the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all the loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue, but in the modern world, in comparison, ignores it. And so it ought to uh, alarm us, or at least raise our interest, if something that uh, previous generations of humans thought was vitally important, that we know from its inclusion in the Bible that God thinks is vitally important, but that we take for granted it ought to at least arise our curiosity to think that maybe we've missed something. Maybe we're missing out on something that we need. I was watching uh, an interview recently with uh, the comedian Louis C.K. He uh, did uh, an interview on Conan O'Brien, a late night show, and he was talking about how he's decided uh, that he's not going to give his children, he has two young daughters, how he's decided he's not going to allow them to have a smartphone. And so he's talking with Conan O'Brien about why 
He's not giving his daughters smartphones. And this is what he says. It's a, it's a pretty serious statement from a comedian. This is what he says about our addiction to technology. He says, you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones are taking away. It's the ability to just sit there. And sometimes when things clear away and you're not watching anything and you're in your car and you start going, oh no, here it comes, that I'm alone feeling. And it starts to visit you, just this sadness. Life is tremendously sad just being in it. That's why we text and drive. I look around and pretty much 100% of the people driving are texting. And they're killing. Everybody's murdering each other with their own cars. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. He's touching on what we know uh, from the scriptures that God said at creation that it's not good for man to be alone. We're not made to live life in isolation. But having lost the ability to forge deep and meaningful friendships, we settle for these counterfeits. We settle for digital versions of friendship or other things. And so what we're going to look at uh, this morning is from the book of Proverbs. The beauty of friendship and its design, the loss of friendship in our lives, and then ultimately the redemption of friendship in Christ. First, the beauty of friendship. You know, a couple of the Proverbs um, that we read, I'm going to read again. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And again, Proverbs 17.17, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. What is friendship? Uh, You know, the, the author is playing friendship and highlighting what, what makes it unique and even a little bit different than the love of siblings, right? He says, there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. The Hebrew word here that's translated sticks is the same word that uh, translates cleave elsewhere in the Bible. That, they, that a friend cleaves to you. It's a language of commitment and covenanted love. It's a language that says friends are those who commit and stick with you. That it's a love that includes loyalty and commitment and perseverance. It's a friend that's just as loyal, just as constant, just as as certain as though they were your blood, as though they were your brother or your sister. That there is a type of friendship that transcends mere companionship or acquaintance and goes to this level of loyalty and commitment and love. So as a brother or a sister is born for adversity. You know, one of the great things about family is they didn't choose you and they can't unchoose you, right? You're, you're, you get your siblings by nature of biology and providence, right? God places you in a family with people. And that's, those are the people you get. No matter how much you annoy them, no matter how, what, what damage is done, ultimately you can't undo the family bond. And that's why he says that a brother is born for adversity, right? And when you go to the hospital, when you go to the funeral home, when you go to the the depths of this life's darkness. In a good situation, your family should be there with you. Your brother should go there with you, should be there in it with you, that you didn't choose them and they shouldn't unchoose you when life gets hard. But he says a friend, on the other hand, loves at all times. Right? Do you know that it's true that your, your family may love you, but they may not like you? Right? Your family may show up with you at the hospital room, but they may not want to grab coffee with you or go on a hike with you or get together and watch the ball game with you. 
But a friend, on the other hand, is chosen. It's a chosen relationship that's made to, to actually not only love you, but also like you. Also have enough commonality, enough chemistry, enough draw towards one another. That you're not only there through the difficult times in life, but you're also playing together and laughing together and talking together uh, late into the night. That friendship is born of a kind of affinity, a kind of, of commonality and, and attraction that's different than simple family love. That a friend loves at all times. You know, uh, friendship is born in commonality, in shared interests, shared uh, uh, passions, right? This is what um, not only Lewis, but also one of the other great essays on friendship, Ralph Waldo Emerson, put this way. He says, the central question of friendship is not, do you love me, but do we see the same truth, right? Are we drawn towards the same things? Lewis put it this way. He said, friendship is born out of the sentiment, what, you too? I thought I was the only one, right? Friendship starts when you realize that in another person, you have a certain amount of commonality, a shared amount of shared passions and interests. And you say, oh, you too? I didn't know there was anybody else that was into this stuff. I didn't know there was anybody else who, whose heart beat in just the same way. That friendship is built on a certain level of commonality. Lewis wisely puts that this is why you can never find friends just by looking for friends, right? That there's not, he's, he puts it this way, it's a little strong. He says, there's nothing more pathetic than the man who just wanders around saying, I need more friends, right? That friendship is found when you're pursuing your life, when you're pursuing your interests and your delights and all of that, and then you look around you and go, oh, you too. This is why for those of you who, uh, who played sports at some point in your life, you know that there's nothing quite like the friendships that are born in the locker room that are born on the field, uh, that are born in that place where you're sharing a mission together, you're in it together, and all of a sudden you look up and you go, oh, we share so much in common, and now we can start to build friendships on top of that. So friendship is rooted in commonality. But commonality is not enough to sustain friendship. That there has to be something that you build on that foundation of simple shared interests. Because shared interests aren't enough you know, if you, if you noticed in the readings that we did, there's a certain amount of pain involved in friendship, right? Notice that the, the author of Proverbs talks about adversity. He talks about wounds. He talks about bearing with one another at all times, right? That there's an element of friendship that has to be willing to endure pain, even to enter into the pain of conflict with one another in order to pursue one another's good and the flourishing of the friendship. It can't just be about Hey, we like getting together and having a drink. We like getting together and playing board games. We like the same TV shows. It has to go deeper than that. I've seen this in my own life most recently. I have, um, uh, some would say over the last five years, I've joined a cult. I think that's not fair. Um, I've, uh, I've started doing CrossFit about five years ago. And uh, there was actually an article in the New York Times about how in, from among millennials, uh, which I'm kind of a part of, um, that, that group fitness whether it's running clubs or CrossFit or yoga classes, has, has started to fill the void left by religion. That there's something about a shared purpose and shared community and fellowship that people taste when they work out together or when they share a, a hobby. But what I've seen over the course of five years uh, doing CrossFit, and I really like it, um, is that liking to exercise together and exercise to the point of injury together um, <laughs> is not enough to sustain friendships. 
I've seen the gym that I'm a part of and these friendships that I'm a part of. I've seen gossip run throughout it. I've seen our, our gym went through the equivalent of a church split, right? A bunch of people left and started their own gym. I saw, I've, seen, uh, I've seen people flirt with other people's spouses. I've seen, I've seen all the dysfunction you can see in a human community happen in this gym. Why? Because it's not enough. Having a shared hobby or shared interests is not enough to sustain the kinds of friendships that are wise, that are life-giving, that'll sustain you over the long haul. This is uh, another one of the Proverbs that we read. Proverbs 27, 6, the author says, faithful are the wounds of a friend and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. What kind of friend wounds? A friend who's more committed uh, to speaking into your life what's good and true than they are with just telling you what you want to hear. Right? You need friends in your life that it goes beyond simply, hey, we like to hang out together, and goes towards, I love you so much. I'm willing to, to speak up against what I see that you're doing that's destructive. I'm willing to speak towards what I see you doing that's good and beautiful. But it takes a friendship, being willing to enter into a friendship where you can be both vulnerable with one another, opening up your true self, being known as you really are, hiding and holding nothing back, but also where you can be truthful, where you can be honest, where you can uh, be for one another in a more deep and lasting way. That's the beauty of friendship, as the author of Proverbs puts it. It's knowing that you're arm in arm with someone that's so close to you, they're like a brother or sister, and you know they love you, but they're also committed to even sticking with you through hard things, even speaking hard things into your life. And I think as I reflect on my life, as I reflect on the kinds of friendships that we tend to build in our culture, I think these kinds of friendships are rare. Why do we have such shallow friendships in our lives? So let's talk about the loss of friendship in our world. You know, Lewis uh, makes the point that, uh, that in all cultures, in all societies, friendship is the most vulnerable of the human loves, right? The other ones, you know, romantic love, uh, family love, tenderness, the love that parents feel for, feel for, for children, that, that of, of all of these loves, friendship is always the one that's most vulnerable to be neglected. Again, quoting from the four loves, he says, I have no duty to become anyone's friend, and he has no duty to be mine, no claims, no shadow of necessity. Friendship is unnecessary, like philosophy, like art, like the universe itself, for God did not need to create. It has no survival value. Rather, it's one of those things which give value to survival. Right? So we're going to prioritize romantic love because you have hormones that drive you that way. You have interest that drives you that way. We're going to value familial love because the family is such one of the building blocks of our cultural life, but friendship, it's easy to neglect. It's easy to let it uh, be eclipsed by these other loves, right? Some societies, and I would think ours is one of these, uh, minimize friendship because we so idolize romance, right? We're so fixated on the idea that Mr. or Mrs. Wright is going to bring everything you need into your life, that we don't need other relationships. So we're so fixated on romantic love that we can, we can stop focusing on friendship, Right, if you think this is true, next time you're at, if you don't think this is true, next time you're at the checkout aisle of your local supermarket, look at the covers of the gossip magazines. 
right? We don't buy magazines to find out who Brad Pitt is friends with now, right? We don't buy, fr- we don't buy these magazines to figure out who celebrities are best friends with. We buy them to find out who they're sleeping with, right? That's what drives us. It's this curiosity, this interest in romantic love above all others. We don't, ca- we don't care about friendship. If you look at the blockbusters, the movies that we shell out money to buy tickets to go see, they're almost all about romance at some level. Even the, even the most banal action-adventure movie, usually the hero has to at least have a, a love interest in it. Right? One, of the, one of the major blockbusters of our generation, The Lord of the Rings, built on uh, Tolkien's books, those books are about friendship. The, the Lord of the Rings is about the power of friendship. And in order to sell the movies, they put a romance at the center, but in Tolkien's books are part of the appendix. They're, they're, they're hardly relevant at all. But they know that the modern mind craves romance. And so we denigrate friendship. Some more traditional cultures so elevate family commitments over and above friendship, but others, all of them, tend to push friendship to the margins of our lives. Again, the author of Proverbs in the, in the verse that we've quoted already, 1824, says, a man of many companions comes to ruin. Right? Having many companions, having a lot of superficial relationships is no substitute for real friendship. Right? How many times, a, a man that comes to ruin, how many times do you, uh, when somebody commits a horrible crime, are there people on the news being interviewed saying, yeah, I, was, I worked with him every day and I had no idea. Right, or how many times when you see somebody that, uh, that you come out, even in the church, is having an affair, has made a decision to walk out of their marriage, do people go, yeah, I never saw it coming. He always seemed like such a good guy. Right, this, this world where we have superficial connections, companionship, without friends that really know us, sets us up for the potential of ruin, where there's nobody who knows us well enough to really know uh, what's going on in our hearts. I'm convinced that in our world, most of our relationships are at this level. They are superficial companionships and transactional relationships, right? A transactional relationship is one where you're both in because of what you can do for one another, right? And if you think about your relationships, I think most of them at some level are about what you can do for one another. Now, it may be, uh, it may be that that's, well, we can have fun together. We can have a good time together. I, I enjoy it when I'm with them. And so that person's value that they bring to your life is enjoyment. Other, for others, it's they can help me in my job. They can help me in my career. They can help me get ahead. Maybe they can, just, they can be around. They can take away the loneliness for a while. But I think we look at our lives. We take uh, what's made to be deep and lasting friendships, and we settle for these superficial relationships. Why do we do that? Why do we settle for these relationships that don't ultimately meet our longing for true friendship, true and vulnerable knowing and commitment? And I think it's because of sin, right? Like all that's broken in our world. And it's because of the fundamental, I believe, insecurity that we bring to our relationships. That every one of us brings into our relationships this insecurity that if I'm really known, right, if this person really knows me for who I am, all that's ugly within me, all that's selfish, all that's unlovable, then certainly they won't want anything to do with me, right? And so we all bring this insecurity into our relationships. And some of us, it makes shrink into a corner and we don't even try to make friends. We, we pre-evaluate ourselves so we're convinced nobody will really love us. Others of us, it leads us to boast and brag and, and take on a persona that's, that's larger than life to try to win friendships. But I think for all of us, it comes out of this fundamental insecurity 
but I can't be who I really am. I can't, I can't really be known or else I won't be loved. So we settle for being known rather than loved. Uh, we settle for fans instead of friends. We settle for uh, Facebook friendships, right? I, you know, I've got a thousand Facebook friends. Sure, I can't be lonely, right? I look at all these people that say they like me, right? I've got, a, I've got dozens of, of LinkedIn connections. How could, how could I be lonely? And yet there is a loneliness that persists in it. Listen to these quotes. I love, uh, I found these. These are from some of the people that you would look at in our world and think, surely this person couldn't be lonely. Oscar-winning actress Anne Hathaway confessed in an interview, loneliness is my least favorite thing about life. The thing I'm most worried about is just being alone without anybody to care for, somebody who will care for me. Ernest Hemingway, the great writer, said, I live in a vacuum that is as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead and there's no current to plug into. Albert Einstein said, it's strange to be known so universally and yet to be so lonely. Marilyn Monroe, sometimes I think the only people who stay with me and really listen are the people that I hire and the people that I pay. Friendship is broken in our world and it's in need of redemption. And Proverbs does hold out the possibility that real, deep, and lasting friendship is possible, that it can be found, it can be built. And so let's look uh, now at, at the way that friendship in our lives can be redeemed. You know, Solomon, uh, is, as I said earlier, is the principal author of Proverbs. And Solomon is somebody uh, who's able to give this beautiful advice, this beautiful wisdom for friendship. So how did Solomon get it? Where did Solomon find the wisdom and the power to, to lay out this vision of friendship? Well, it's because Solomon knew what friendship was. Solomon, uh, friendship was an integral part of Solomon's story. If you don't know Solomon, Solomon was the son of David, the, the great king of Israel. Solomon himself became king of Israel. And in Solomon's family, in David's royal family, when Solomon's growing up, he would have been surrounded by his, his brothers. They would have eaten around the family table with the best food Israel could provide. And every day, every meal that they gathered together for that meal, there would be one person who didn't quite belong. See, there was a man named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, great name. There was a man named Mephibosheth who was crippled. So every day when the king's sons would gather around this table, there would come this crippled man limping up to the table, pulling up his seat, bringing out his food, and the king's children would eat with him as though he were an adopted member of the family. I imagine when, when Solomon got old enough, he would have looked to David, his father, and said, Dad, what's with, what's with this guy? Why is he here? Why is he treated just like one of your own sons? And David would explain to him, he, said, he would say, you see, son, I had a friend. I had a friend named Jonathan, a friend who when he had every reason in the world to kill me, when he had every reason in the world to hate me, chose to love me. You see, when David was a young man anointed to become the king of Israel, the reigning king's son was a man named Jonathan. Right? Who has the most to be concerned with when another guy comes along and says, God has anointed me to be the next king? Well, it's the next in line for the throne, right? It's Jonathan. It's the king's son. And yet listen to this from, from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18. It was the meeting of David and Jonathan. As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, David and Saul are talking. As soon as he finishes speaking to Saul, 
The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and he would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David. Remember, there's a friend that cleaves closer than a brother. He makes a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, stripped himself of all of his status as a royal son and gave it to David. And his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt, all of his defenses, he makes himself totally vulnerable, gives up his weapons and his armor to David. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So friendship was such an integral part of Solomon's life, a part of his home, a part of his dad's story, a part of his, his family makeup, that after Jonathan's death, out of kindness and loyalty to his friend, he adopted Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, as though he was his own son. So Solomon would have seen the bonds of friendship. He would have known it at a gut and experience level. And from there would have been able to talk about it, would have been able to be a friend. And I think that the, the, the truth is that we can never be friends, the kinds of friends that we want to be, until we know what it is to, to have a friend, until we know what it is to be befriended. My four-year-old son, Hart, uh, learned to sing a song at school, at his preschool this year, uh, that he then would sing occasionally to us. Uh, which was, it, I'm not going to sing it, um, but the chorus is, if you want to be a, if you want a friend, be a friend, right? They're te- trying to teach four-year-olds how to be friends, and because uh, it doesn't come naturally to any of us, and so they're saying, if you want to, if you want friends, be a friend. Learn to love. Learn to be a friend. And the way you learn to be a friend is to be befriended. It's to, it's to be loved. It's to know true and lasting friendship. And so the way that Jesus redeems friendship in our lives, the way that he, that he shows us how we can become friends of others is not just by teaching us. He doesn't just say, oh, go read Proverbs and learn how to be friends. What does he say? You know, he becomes the friend of sinners. He becomes the ultimate friend, the friend who's born for adversity, the friend who sticks closer than a brother, the friend that bears in his own body the wounds of faithful friendship, right? He becomes the friend in the last chapters of the Gospel of John, when Jesus is sharing uh, the la- his last meal with his disciples, when he's trying to prepare them for what's coming, when he's trying to talk to them about what's going to happen at the cross, one of the ways that he talks about his death on the cross, well, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. It's from John chapter 15, starting in verse 12. This is right before Jesus heads to the cross when he's spending his last moments with his disciples. He says this, this is my commandment, he says to his friends, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. 
It's amazing what Jesus says here. He's saying essentially that God, Father, Son, and Spirit has existed as a friendship throughout all of eternity, a relationship of perfect love, perfect friendship. And he's saying, I have come in order to extend that friendship to you. Right? I've taken everything I've gotten from my Father I've made known to you. The spirit that's filled my life and, and, and has empowered me is going to also be in you. That it's this enlarging circle of friendship. He came, not that he would call us servants. right? Certainly, that would be enough, right? If Jesus came and said, you know what? You who've sinned and rebelled against God the Father, here's my grace. What I'm going to do is I'm going to let you become God's servants again. I'm going to take you from enemy and make you a servant. I'm no longer going to, God's no longer going to smite you from heaven for your sins, but you are going to work like a servant. But he does more than that. He says, I don't just call you servants. I call you friends. I call you friends, not only my friends, but a friend within the circle of friendship that is God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. But he brings us in to this friendship so that we can taste and know real and lasting love. I love this paragraph uh, from Timothy Lane, a counselor. Uh, He wrote a book called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. Listen to this. The shattered relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the cross provides the basis for our reconciliation. No other relationship ever suffered more than what the Father, Son, and Spirit endured when Jesus hung on the cross and cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was willing to be the rejected son so that our families would know reconciliation. Jesus was willing to become the forsaken friend so that we could have loving friendships. Jesus was willing to become the rejected Lord so that we could live in loving submission to one another. Jesus was willing to be the forsaken brother so that we could have godly relationships. Jesus was willing to be the crucified king so that our communities would experience peace. So the calling that Jesus has in our lives is that we would befriend others as we've been befriended by Christ. That we would extend this love, this sacrificial friendship, this vulnerability and commitment that Jesus, our friend, has given to us, to our friends, to our neighbors. And so a wise person views friendship as a calling in their life centered on Christ a calling on their lives centered in Christ. You know, we all wear a lot of hats in life. We all have a number of callings. We don't just have a calling. We all have a number of callings in our lives. And we all face questions about how we're going to prioritize those callings, right? On a given day, I'm all of these things. I'm a Christian, right? That's my first calling, to be a child of God. I'm a husband, called to be a husband to Haley. I'm a father, called to be a dad to Houston and Hart. I'm those other family relationships. I'm a son and a brother and a cousin and a nephew. I'm all, I'm all those things. Then I'm a friend. And then I'm a pastor. Right? Your vocation uh, can't so dominate who you are that it eclipses that relational world, those other callings that God has on your life. And I think for, for most of us it has and it does. That we don't think of friendship as being a vital and true calling in our lives. There was an article in the, in the Boston Globe earlier this year uh, that was based on a bunch of uh, actual research that had been done. 
And the headline was, was this, that middle-aged men, a number uh, that I now sadly count myself a part of, um, uh, middle-aged men are dying of loneliness. That there is no lonelier group of people than men in their 30s and 40s. And it's literally killing us, right? That it's not smoking or overeating or stress that's the number one indicator of early death in men. It's loneliness. It's isolation. And I think it's because we've ceased to prioritize friendship in this way, right? We, we, we identify ourselves by our work and we do anything it takes to get ahead there. We know that we can't, you know, we're going to hear about it if we skimp out on our marriage or our parenting. And so it's easy for us to push friendship way, way down the list and to live these isolated lives. So let me Let's talk just for a minute to the men. Uh, female friendship is a different world that I know very little about. Um, but I do know something, men, about friendship. And so let me, let, let's talk about it for a minute. The question of who, is gonna be, who are going to be your pallbearers? When you die, who's going to carry your coffin and lay it in the ground? That question uh, isn't, shouldn't be left to the last days of your life. And you're left scrambling and going, oh, no, who are my six best friends? Oh, no, I haven't cultivated any. Right? Those friendships aren't made right before you die. They're made on random Wednesday nights when you feel like staying in and you could, but instead you decide to pick up the phone and get together with a friend. They're made on random lunches at Monday, on a Monday where you say, hey, I could just scarf down lunch in my cubicle and get a little bit of work done, but I'm going I'm I'm to risk and I'm going to reach out in a friendship. There is no more awkward relationship in this world than two dudes trying to become friends in middle age. (laughs) There is nothing more awkward than a grown man reaching out to initiate a friendship. Right? We're all plagued by our insecurities. Right? We've grown up in a world where any masculine show of vulnerability and need and tenderness is viewed with suspicion. This is fascinating. There was a, um, you know, the village of Pompeii in Italy where it was caught up in the eruption of Vesuvius hundreds of years ago. Well, you've probably seen the pictures. If you go to Pompeii, you can see these, these figures that are stuck. Uh, they are in the pose that they were in when the lava flowed through or when the ash fell. And so they're stuck, like, just in their, in their death pose. Um, and there's, there were two figures in Pompeii uh, that, were, that were known to scholars as uh, the maidens of Pompeii, the maidens of Pompeii. It was two people that were, that, that as they died, they were in an embrace. They were hugging one another in the last moment of their life. Two people faced with their own mortality. These two women embraced one another in love, clung to one another in the midst of life's pain and at its end. Through DNA testing, they came to find out that these two maidens of Pompeii were actually men. That it was two men who embraced. And I will give you three guesses, but you'll only need one to know what all of the news outlets said. Two men, likely homosexual, embraced in Pompeii. And you go, what? Nobody thought it would, nobody assumed two women, likely lesbians, embraced in the moment of their death. But it's so hard for us to conceive that two men, faced with the pain of this life, faced with the, uns- the certainty of, of looming death, would choose, rather than to face that alone, to embrace one another in brotherly love. 
that instead we go with, aha, it proves it. There was homosexuality in Pompeii. So men, push through the awkwardness. It's awkward. Push through the vulnerability. Push through your perceived sense of foolishness. You need one another. Don't face this life alone. View it as a calling and embrace each other. And it's a calling centered on Christ. You know, the, um, all of those Proverbs that we read have this vision of two friends that are for each other for something deeper than themselves. That iron sharpening iron effect that we have on one another means that our friendships are to be centered not on one another, but on Christ. All of our friendships, whether they're friendships with fellow Christians or not, should be focused on the others flourishing in their fullness in Christ. Lewis says that lovers stand face to face. Friendships, friends always stand shoulder to shoulder facing something else. Friendship finds its power and finds its meaning when we stand shoulder to shoulder, facing our Savior together, seeking together what we both need in him, fighting sin together, encouraging one another in our walk, and holding one another up with a vision for one another's lives that's deeper than mere acquaintances, than mere companionship. Let's pray.